Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. 1 John 4, verse 7 The apostle writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The word of the Lord. It's been really good for us as a congregation as we start the year to focus on learning to love again with As much as was upended last year, it takes no effort for us to become more primitive, more instinct-driven than guided by godly conviction. John is the apostle of love. And so today and in the next two weeks, we get, or the next week also, we get to the core of John's teaching on love. Now, for the last three Sundays, we finished uh, each sermon by highlighting one of the three things that define us as a church family, our Sunday gatherings, our live groups, and serving. And you know, there's so much that happens here during our Sunday gatherings as we come here by faith and we are here guided by the Spirit of God. And I loved how, much, how many children we've had in the services uh, these days. You know, it's a little messier, but life is messy. You know, but listen, these children, they are listening and they are learning. Last week, um, we talked about the beginning of brotherhood, you know, going back to Cain and Abel. And so this child that was, this toddler that was in the, in the, in the service went home and named his teddy bear Brotherhood. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, you know, like he's two years old, you know, so I, I want to show you this video from that Corinne, his mom sent me and, uh, you know, just, I mean, like this is the best thing I've seen in 2021, but um, just, you know, so his, uh, his teddy bear uh, is his baby, you know, so just watch this. Can you tell me, what did you just say? My baby brotherhood. Baby brotherhood? Yeah. Where did you learn the, the word brotherhood? I don't know. Where did you learn the word brotherhood? I don't know. Did you learn it yesterday? Yeah. Where? At And they got Harry going home from church. Who said that at church? Pastor Jack. Good listening, buddy. Good listening, yes. You know, the children are listening and they're learning, you guys, you know, and so it's a great thing. But, you know, Sundays, groups, and serving, these are so important to us, and it's been so wonderful to see so many of you respond to each one of these things. You know, it's a good thing. It's a good indication of a healthy church when, when the Word of God addresses us uh, through the pastors that God has given, and we see movement. You know, if the Word of God says to 
us that we should love one another. And the pastors uh, that are appointed by God say, these are the ways that we're practicing love for one another. Um, we should then respond. Otherwise, we're just hearing the word of God, but we're not obeying. We are not doing it. It's a sign of a healthy church when we are unified in purpose and God can move through us. It's a sign of spiritual maturity, of conviction, of peace, of harmony, like a symphony. And we've all heard the difference between a professional orchestra that plays one of Beethoven's symphonies and a high school band playing Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline. You know, we won the orchestra. We won the orchestra. Now today, we come to one of the most terse and potent theological statements in all of scripture. And that is God is love. God is love. That statement, God is love, is very different from the statement that our culture has mastered and made millionaires out of quite a few people. And that is love is God. You see, God is love and love is God are not the same thing. Not even close. In our culture, we have turned love, romantic love, into a God. Billboard magazine determined that the most popular song with the word love in the title is the 1980s ballad by Lionel Richie and Diana Ross called Endless Love. I'm sure that some of you perhaps, you know, dance to that song for your first dance on your wedding day. Nothing wrong with that, you know. But I just want you to listen to some of the lyrics, okay? I want you to listen for how we've turned romantic love into a God. They sing, my love, there's only you in my life, the only thing that's bright. My first love, you're every breath that I take, you're every step I make. And I, I want to share all my love with you. No one else will do. And your eyes, your eyes, your eyes, they tell me how much you care. Ooh, yes. You will always be my endless love. Now, we could talk about these lyrics for a long time, but let's not, okay? Just think of there's only you in my life, the only thing that's bright. You're every breath that I take, you're every step I make. No wonder so many marriages end up in divorce. If the only thing in my life that is bright is my spouse, with all you know, their trauma and insecurities and shame and mood swings, then life is going to be a very dark, dark place. But we have hundreds, thousands of songs with this kind of all-consuming language. Now we could say, well, I mean, come on, that's just lovers getting carried away, speaking in hyperbole. Sure, but let's remember that language forms our reality. Language forms the truth we believe. So I say, let's be done with love is God and let's focus instead on God is love. We're gonna do this in three points. We're gonna do it in a Trinitarian way. So first, love begins with the Father. Love begins with the Father. First John 4, verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. John begins by saying, beloved. Now, this is a term of endearment. He uses it six times in the letter. 
Other times he says little children or children. You know, these words capture some of the deep affection that John as a pastor has for his flock. And having been here for five years with you, I relate to some of what John must have felt for his congregation. You know, the word of God that we share together in our communal experience as the family of God form a bond, you know, through, through loss, through death, through birth, through weddings, through baptism, through conversion. There's this bond between pastor and congregation that can aptly be described by the word beloved. And so John says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Love is from God. The reason the love is such an intense and universal emotion is that its origin is in God and it belongs to God. No one culture invented love. Now that statement should give us great encouragement. Great encouragement because we've all been burned by love. Well, been burned by love. Maybe a parent, a sibling, maybe a child. Maybe you were burned by a girlfriend or boyfriend or, or a spouse. And so what happens is our thinking can get start, start getting skewed. And we can start concluding things that are not good. You know, our reasoning can go this way. If this person who was supposed to love me actually hurt me in a way that I've never been hurt before, then I don't believe in love. That's not what you want to conclude. What you want to conclude is something like this. If this person who was supposed to love me actually hurt me in a way that I've never been hurt before, then I must live in a world where people, even at their best, will prove disappointing. That would be true. Or if this person who was supposed to love me actually hurt me like I've never been hurt before, then I must go deeper into God knowing God, because God is love and he alone can mend me and restore me and heal me. Love is from God. We learn love from lesser teachers. Honestly, all of us do. It starts with our parents. Our parents are the first ones that we learn love from and our parents try their best. Anna and I are trying our best with our children and failing. Our parents way of love is a lesser form of love than God's. And so our parents must become less prominent in time and God more dominant. See, this is where so many people stumble in life because they go from broken human love to broken human love to broken human love. Love is from God. It has its origin in God, its source in God. Look at the middle of verse seven. He says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now we're gonna talk about the new birth in two weeks more in depth. But for now, what John says here is that for us, you know, in order to know God, we must be born of God. And so you want to ask yourself, do I know, do you know that you've been born of God? Now you may say, oh yeah, I said a prayer in this place five years ago or 20 years ago and gave my life to God. Okay, great. But John has a test for us and the test is really good. He says right there, whoever loves has been born of God. That's the test. You love, you've been born of God. So how full of love for God's people are you? Because that's what he means by love. He doesn't mean the romantic love that we think of. No, no, no. He, he means God's people. You can read the entire letter and you will get that crystal clear. How full of love are you for the people of God? How many people from the church 
would call you at two in the morning when their life goes down the drain? How many people trust you to that level where there's this trust so that they will pick up the phone and call you when nothing makes sense? Think about that. Verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So if you've experienced that God is love, you're going to be unable to keep to yourself. You're going to be unable to stay to yourself because you will find yourself supernaturally moving toward. You will find yourself moving toward the people of God, almost like a reflex. And I say almost because God does not bypass our person, right? He works through our emotions and through our thinking and our willing and so forth. But you'll find yourself drawn to the people of God if you've experienced that God is love. You see, many people have only experienced that God is law. And so they resent him because they can't keep his laws. Others believe that God is judgment. And so they fear him, but mostly ignore him. And still others believe God is wealth. And so they come to him for blessing. But only those who've experienced God as love, God is love, those will find themselves full of love for God's people. So if you find yourself like you kind of stay on the outskirts of the church, you might have only experienced God as law, as judgment, as blessing, and none of them, none of those will save you. Only the experience that God is love is saving. And so love begins with the Father. Number two, love is personified in the Son. So love is manifested in the Son. Look at verse nine. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. So John now gets really specific about how it is that we come to know God's love, how his love is manifested for us. And he's so helpful because he starts correcting all these basic misunderstandings that we have when it comes to love. And boy, are they many. Why do you think that people feel so lonely, so broken, so victimized, so hopeless? Because at some point, their definition or expression or reception of love went sideways. I mean, I get with a married couple or with a single person. And we just start talking about their life and their life's events. And it's clear to me and to them that, man, at so many different times, their love, their reception of it, their expression of it, their definition of it went sideways. That's why we're talking tonight about five lies we believe in marriage. Because it's so easy for our understanding of love to go the wrong way. And so here, one of those misunderstandings of love is that the love of God is manifested in how problem-free my life is. The fewer problems I have, the more I perceive God's love for me. Don't believe me? Well, let's look at the reverse side of that belief. When something goes wrong, when we are stripped of something that we believe matters so much to us, we cry, foul. God, where were you? I mean, you hear this often. God, you let my mom get cancer. 
You took my loved one. And if that's the kind of God you are, absent when I need you the most, I don't want to have anything to do with you. You hear this often. And so John redirects our understanding of love by pointing us to the right place where we see God's love manifested and that is in the sending of his son into the world so that we might live through him. John says that is the clearest, surest, deepest expression of God's love. I have been a Christian for over a decade when that truth finally started hitting me like a lightning bolt. Like many people, and through deficient church in the church and the propensity of my own sinful heart, I looked for God's love in my prospects. My prospects. Now, I wouldn't have verbalized it that way. It was more at the intuition level, but it went something like this. God, open the doors that I want opened. God, make life and things go my way. Now, listen, we all have desires, And we all must bring those desires to God. We've talked about this many times. The deepest thing about you, you want to bring that to him. But if God is going to be God, then we must allow him to change our desires, to transform them, to replace them. And guess what? It's always an upgrade. (laughs) Any and every time that God replaces our desires, it's an upgrade. You're going to be better off. We must, if God is God, we need to allow him to open doors and close them as he wills. And when he closes a door, it does not mean that he loves us any less. You see, what became transformational for me, what started to set me free was verses like 1 John 4, 9. The way that I know that God loves me, period, is that he sent his son into the world so that I might have life through him. That was transformational, still is. God's love for me is objective. It's manifested outside of myself. It has nothing to do with how I feel. It has nothing to do with whatever is happening in my life. God's love for me is historically proven, fixed in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. It won't go away. It can't be erased. If I wake up tomorrow feeling depressed, God's love for me displayed in the sending of his son is still true. If I lose everything that I hold dearest, God's love for me displayed in the sending of his son is still true. You see, John says God sent his only son. That word translated only means one of a kind. One of a kind. God's one of a kind son. God has many sons. Many of them are right here. But none like this one. This is his one-of-a-kind son. And he sent him for us. He sent him for us into the world. We know how John views the world in this context as rebellious, as a world that would hate him. That's where God sent his one-of-a-kind son. He didn't send an angel. He didn't send Elijah again. He sent his son His one-of-a-kind son. When Jesus appeared in Nazareth, God's love showed up like never before. Don't ever lose sight of that. It'll transform your life. That verse, 1 John 4, 9, circle it, highlight it, memorize it. That verse can handle 
anything that life throws at you. Verse nine, verse 10, he goes on. And this is love. He's not done telling us about love, not even close. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John keeps correcting our misunderstandings of love. He says, you wanna love, know love? Don't focus on how much you love God, focus on how much God loves you. You see, the greatest commandment is for us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. But that's not the greatest thought. That's not the greatest reality. The greatest reality is that God loves us and that he sent his son as the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, that's an important word to John. He uses it twice in the letter. And it deals with, it refers to the, the dilemma that we as humanity find ourselves in. Because of our sin and rebellion against God, everyone in the world has a relationship with God, but it's a relationship of enmity. It's a relationship of hostility. We are not God's friends. We are not God's family. We are objects of God's wrath. If God did not save one person in the entire world, he would simply be justly executing his holiness and his justice. He doesn't owe anything to anyone. Not one of us is innocent. Sometimes I get people who, who ask me, well, is it fair for people who've never heard of Jesus to go to hell? And I say, oh, there's a more fundamental question. Is it fair for any person to go to heaven? And the answer is no. If it was just based on fairness, just based on justice, none of us would go to heaven. Not me, not you, not anyone. But you see, God is love. And it's his love that compelled him to send his son as the propitiation for our sins. He sent Jesus Christ so that by his death, by his pain for our transgression, by that one act, God could remove our sin from us, expiation, and he could restore his favor to us, propitiation. God is made propitious toward us, favorable. Do you see this? By the one death of Jesus, something is taken away from us and something is given to us. Our sin is taken away from us forever and God's favor is restored to us forever. Guys, the forgiveness of sin and the removal of God's wrath from us can never get old. It can never get old for us. It was God's love that held him there nailed to that cross. I mean, think about this. God is love. Love is who God is in his nature. It's who God is in his character. God has forever, has always been love. If you think about God in terms of a continuum, stretching all the way to infinity past and all the way to infinity future, okay? Forever God is love. This will always and has always been true of God. But the way that you and I see the expression of God's love in the most potent, in the clearest way, is in the coming, the sending of Jesus to the world that we might live through him, that he might be the propitiation for our sins. There's a famous passage that beautifully illustrates this. It's in a novel by Helen Waddell called Peter Abelard. And it's based on the medieval theologian, Peter Abelard. 
And so in this passage, Peter and his friend, who is a priest, are walking through the woods. And as they're walking through the woods, they come upon this rabbit that is caught in a snare. And the suffering of the rabbit gets them talking about the sufferings of Christ. And so Peter's friend says to him, he's talking to him about what made him want to become a priest. And he says, I saw that God suffered too. And then he sees this log, this fallen log from a tree that had been sawn in two. And he, he focuses on the cross section. And he says to Peter, you see this, this black ring right here? It goes up and down the length of the log, but we only see it right here at the cross section. And then he says to Peter, that's who Christ was, the bit of God that we saw. Isn't that awesome? Don't you love that? The 30 plus years of Jesus Life on earth are the bit of God that we saw, but that bit is big enough for us to know for all eternity that God is love and that he loves me and that he could never love me anymore. Listen, listen to me, do yourself a favor. Never, never, never base God's love for you on your prospects. Look to Jesus fixed in history, as objective as the sun and know it is impossible for my God to love me anymore. God's love is manifested in the Son. And finally, love is perfected through the Spirit. Love is perfected through the Spirit. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So John says that no one has ever seen God because God the Father is spirit. No one has seen him. But then he says, but if we love one another, then God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In chapter three, verse 24, John had said, by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. So let's put these together. John told us in 324 that God's spirit is given to us. He dwells within us. He reinforces for us our identity as children of God, God's beloved. And so love begins with the Father, is manifested in the Son, and is perfected by the Spirit. But it's in, don't miss this, it's in the exercise of our love for one another that God's love for us is perfected by that spirit. I don't know how many ways John can say the same thing. I told you a couple of weeks ago that John writes to us like we are deaf, like we are blind. He just says it so many different ways so we don't miss it. That it's precisely because God has forgiven our sins in his son and giving us life in him that we are to love one another. But however many ways, however, however many times he has to say it, we need. Because, you guys, because we are slow. We are slow to love. We are slow to move toward one another in love. To pour ourselves out into the body of Christ. Do you know why our love is so rationed, so, so stingy, so tribal, barely available for even the people that live with us in our own household? Do you know why that is? Because the forgiveness of sins 
by the life of Jesus Christ has not landed for us with the conviction of the Holy Spirit and just left us there undone. There's a very important passage in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus makes a connection that is not obvious to us. He says, he who is forgiven little loves little. He who is, just think about that. He who is forgiven little loves little, the Lord says. He said that at Simon's house. He said that when Simon, Simon was a Pharisee and he invited Jesus over for dinner, but he didn't really invite him to welcome him in, to really hear him out. He invited him, it seems like, to judge him. And while Jesus is there, this woman that has a bad reputation in town comes in and makes a fool of herself in the presence of all these people who are there looking down on her. She comes where Jesus is and she begins to weep and her tears are wetting his feet and she takes her hair and she wipes his feet with her hair and then she starts kissing his feet and she takes this perfume that she brought and she anoints his feet with it. I mean, just picture this. It's a lot. It's quite this spectacle. And everyone's going, what in the world? Simon goes, if this man was really a prophet, he would know who this woman is, that she's a big sinner. He would not let her touch him. Now Jesus knows that that's what Simon is thinking. And so he challenges Simon with a story. And he says, Simon, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him $50,000, the other owed him $500. Neither one could pay him back, so he canceled the debt of both. Now, who do you think Simon loved him more? And Simon says, well, um, I suppose the one who had the larger debt paid, canceled. And Jesus says, you are correct. And then he says, Simon, from the time that I came to your house, you gave me no water for my feet, no kiss, no oil for my head. These were all customary things in the culture. He's not asking for anything extra. Then he says, but this woman, from the time that she came in, she has not stopped wiping my feet with her hair and kissing my feet and anointing them with oil. Therefore, he says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loves much. But he who's forgiven little loves little. Church, Simon did not have fewer sins than the woman. He only thought he did. And frankly, as I look at my own heart and the lack of love among us, I think we're more like Simon than like the woman. We think that our sins are few. We're not rapists, we're not killers, we're not thieves. We're good law-abiding citizens who've worked hard to get to the place in life where we are. And we are burying ourselves in the hole of our respectable lives, holding our flickering candle of a love that we ration lest it run out so that we barely have enough for the people in our own households. If you can't see your utter self-interest, your hatred, your anger, your lust, your selfishness, how you close your heart to people in need, if you can't see the length and depth of your sin is so great that only the length and depth of Christ's love and worth can cover it, then your love is gonna be, oh, 
so small. He who is forgiven little loves little. Do you want to become loving and sacrificial? Do we want to become this kind of people? Do you want to become like the woman? I mean, what is that? What is that a picture of? What's she doing? It's a picture of desperation, dependence, and delight all wrapped in one. I mean, this woman comes right next to Jesus and she's just like, without you, I am dead. With you, I am safe and satisfied. I'm complete. I'm at peace. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I couldn't use for anything of more worth my tears, my hair, this worthless perfume. God sent his son as the propitiation for our sins. Is your love bottled up? Do you keep it to yourself, unmoved by the greatness of the sin that's been forgiven to you? Then you might be in the place that Simon was. Either deceived, you think you're saved, but you're still in your sins. Or you're proud. You think so highly of yourself that you think you're dead to God. Uh, it's kind of small, smallish. You could handle it on your own, probably. Either way, I'm concerned for you. I'm worried for us. So beg, beg God to break your pride or your blindness or both. Beg him. I know some of you sense that God is after you. God is after you. Do you sense that? Man, I've been talking to a number of people and the last year, the last 10, 11 months have been amazing for them. COVID has been great for them. The things that God has been doing in their lives, incredible. Is that your case? Are you, has it been amazing? Has God been transforming, just wrecking your life, turning it upside down? Many of you heard Melena's testimony last week for her baptism, so raw, so honest. God was after her last year and she knew it. TV with the central place it had in her life had to go, but she had the spiritual sensitivity to respond. Do you? We can be so dull. We can be so dull that we don't have the spiritual perception to discern the things in us that are so toxic, the things that are disemboweling the life in us, the life that God seeks to give us in Christ. What must go? What's God after? What's he saying? This needs to go. This has become your God. This needs to go. What is that? What's God doing? Can you respond? Be done with love is God chasing after romantic love that always will leave you empty. If God is after you and you've never given your life to Jesus, respond today. Respond now. This is the day. This is the time. There is not another time. Give your life to him. And when you do that, you need to know that you need the community of believers to help you understand the work of God in your life, to help you process it. You will not mature in isolation, but we're here. We're here for you because we need one another. And if God is after you and you would say, this is your church family, God is addressing our love. 
how bottled up into ourselves we keep it. And so you need to do work on the magnitude of the sin that has been forgiven to you. And you need to allow, allow God to break you open like a flask of perfume and your love to run, run, run freely to the people of God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray. Father, what a gift. What a gift is this letter to us, Lord. We needed John to pen down these short chapters. Otherwise, we would not have that incredibly potent declaration. God is love. Oh, Father, I pray that we would all cling to that, that it would be dear to us, but that we would not stop there, that we would go on to 1 John 4, 9, and know that we know that we are loved by you because you sent your son into the world, that through him we might, we might have life. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Thank you that your love is historically proven. It is objective. It's not going anywhere. It can't. It can't be erased. It's done. Thank you, Jesus, that you said it is finished. It has nothing to do with how I feel or my circumstances. You love me, and I know it, and you can't love me anymore because you gave your son for me. Father, I just pray that that would transform many of us today. I pray, Father, that for those of us who've bought into the wrong definition or expression or reception of love, that it would be done today. Done. I pray, Father, that we would not define love based on our prospects, based on the doors that you open or close, based on how much people love us or fail to love us. Father, I pray that we would simply be able to look to the cross, to look to Jesus, and to say, there. There it is. It was God's love that held him there, nailed to that cross, so that his wrath justly hanging over me could be forever removed. Absorbed by Jesus in my place. And his favor could be restored to me, to us. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We trust you. We want to meditate day in and day out on the greatest reality that you love us. And we look forward to next week that you loved us first. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.